Welcome, church. If you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's found on page 914. Acts chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gathering this morning. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we, as a church, Continue to focus on prayer, Lord, whether it be corporate like we have right now or in our smaller groups, or in our homes with our families or in our private place, one-on-one -on -one with you, Lord, that our hearts would be attuned to you, that what pleases you would please us, Lord, and that you would continually be viewed as our great reward. We pray now for Pastor Toby as he comes. You'd fill him with your wisdom, with your spirit, that your truth would pour out. And we as the benefactors for your glory would just continue to serve and be obedient. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Well, we'll see. Does that work better? So far, all right. I'm good with that. Uh, you know, it, was it struck me this morning as uh, the praise team was, as we prayed together after our rehearsal, um, not only the goodness of being back together again this morning, but how so many who are seeking to advance the gospel in some of the hardest places in the world um, don't have the sweetness of this kind of fellowship. And so it is good for us to remember on days when we cannot get together and we feel that sense of loss, it is good to remember those who almost know no other kind of week except one where they're alone like that. And so we especially want to remember our friends that we recently sent out. Um, though there are a couple of believers near them where they're at, uh, there can be a good deal of aloneness that they will deal with, various members of the family. So be in prayer for them as well. 
I did want to uh, underline Chad's encouragement to be here this evening. Um, it, it's those Sunday evening members meetings, and this is this is if you're guests with us, we're we're unlike other maybe. Why don't we just use this one? That one's ringing a whole lot, and I wore the wrong clothes for this microphone. Um, but in our members' meetings, we truly do just have members together. So if you're guests with us, there's not a special gallery for you to observe what happens in a members' meeting. And the primary reason for that is that often, very often, we deal with things that are only family business. And so we keep those things uh, to that circle. But tonight, we do want to talk about the budget for 2019 and approve that. And the reason why that's important and the reason why you ought to be here if you're a member is because when we approve a budget, we are not so much approving what we're going to spend in a given year as much as we are approving what we will give in a particular year and where those monies will go as in God's kindness and providence and provision we give. So it is important for you to be here to be part of that. I will tell you that uh, even though we were a few thousand dollars short this year in our budget to giving, I mean, we were fine in budget, but, you know, our giving versus our spending, as you'll see on the reports. But we are increasing our desired budget for 2019 because the family that we just sent out, we want to be fully supporting them at the level we want to be through our regular giving and not have to take a special offering to make that up. And how will that happen? Well, quite frankly, uh, and I'll say this again tonight, it will happen as each family unit, if each family unit in our congregation literally gave $10 more in, per month, per month, we would blow our desired giving out of the water and we'd be able to fully fund that family by next January. That's exciting to me. I'll repeat that tonight, but I wanted to say it now because no matter how much I urge some of you, you still won't come back tonight. And so I just figure I have to talk to you while I can. This is, it's actually very important that we're together as, as members and talking about uh, family business. But that is the end of the plea for the members meeting portion of our time together. I want you to imagine that you're actually perusing a job website, all right? And, uh, and one particular position catches your eye and you read uh, some of these ways that describe the ideal candidate for that position. That this person will be a great planner who can develop strategies to address challenges and leverage opportunities. A leader who keeps staff motivated through realistic goal setting and measuring results. One who is timely in his execution of professional correspondence. A creative program creator and effective program manager. One who can consult on the financial health of the organization. One who is a leader who can take the organization to the next level. It's always interesting, nobody ever defines what that actually means, the next level. Uh, it's somewhere out there. I, I don't think they're talking about heaven, though that truly will be the next level. All right. Uh, that this person will be a meaningful change agent in the growth of the organization, that, that he will be a day-to-day -day operations manager who can elevate and improve our current processes, that he will resolve issues regarding facilities and their use by the organization and the surrounding community, that he will be the public relations point person in the community and 
in the media. Now, what do you think? Not do you want the job, I'm just asking you. What kind of position do you think we're looking at here? It could be any number of things, couldn't it? But I found all of these characteristics, I pieced them together from ads that I looked at on, on websites where churches place ads looking for new pastors. Not for myself, mind you, but because I had a sneaking suspicion that I might find what I just read. Sadly, I was right. Now, along with this, I want to be very forthright. Every single one that I looked at said that the man needs to meet the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, listed some other wonderful pastoral uh, uh, duties that are carried out, uh, including preaching and teaching. One said, we actually don't want a good preacher. We will only take a great one. I am very thankful that almost 10 years ago that was not Gray Road standard. Uh, but in the three dozen or so ads that I saw online, I will tell you that one out of those three dozen mentioned anything about their new pastor being a man of prayer. Now, one may think this should be assumed in a pastor, but nothing should be assumed. We live in a day when technique and strategy have very quickly and seemingly very finitely in some places replaced prayer and fasting. In fact, Leonard Ravenhill, an English evangelist of the last century in his very evangelist type way, he was known for focusing on prayer. It was one of his main focuses. He said this, the pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Lot, much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. Too often, prayer is an aside or an afterthought when plans are being made for particular kinds of ministry, even in pastoral ministry, but quite frankly, this will not do. Those men who fulfill the role of elders in any local congregation must be men of prayer. And in Acts chapter 6, the priority of prayer alongside God's word for church leaders is underlined. The main thrust coming in chapter 6, verse 4 but we, the apostles say, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. From that verse, from this text, we are reminded that the church must have leaders who prioritize prayer and God's word. The church must have leaders who prioritize prayer and God's word. It's interesting that the apostles do not say, but we will devote ourselves to creative strategic thinking. Though they were strategic in how they operated. We will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
But it opens up not so much with a declaration as with an obstacle. And so first we have to see the problem that's come along before we can rightly understand why the apostles would even say this. Uh, the problem, the devo it, it's interesting that the apostles' devotion to prayer and to the word, they didn't like send out a flyer. It's as a problem arose that their priorities were revealed. Did you know that that's how our priorities in life are often revealed? Is when, priority, is when problems come along? So that when problems in our job or in our finances or in our health or in our families happen, they peel back the curtain of our hearts and show us what is truly the priority for us. That if we prioritize a smooth sailing life with no problems, a life and a job and a family that operates according to my will at all times, and then the crisis arises, then it will not be surprising when unbelief or anger or despair is revealed. But if we are prioritizing honoring the Lord and trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord and believing that He has good purposes in all that He does, then that too will show itself when the problem comes in how we respond to it. Now let's look at the problem. It's not the first problem this young... We're only six chapters into Acts and it hasn't been smooth sailing to this point. They're facing problems from the outside as well as problems from the inside. From the outside in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the crowds are mocking them saying, hey, the, you guys are drunk, when actually they're filled with the Spirit. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 find the apostles being imprisoned for their ministry, being threatened, being beaten. And if threats from the outside is not enough, there are threats from the inside as well. So that in Acts chapter 5, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira threatened the health of the church. And here we have in Acts chapter 6, another problem from the inside, complaints. Complaints which are like the cracks that were in, this, in these walls. They are just the first indication of division. So who are these people? Now in these days, verse 1 says, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists were Jews whose families in prior generations had been driven out of their homes. They were faithful to Judaism in other places. However, they spoke Greek. They picked up the Greek language so they could get by in the culture where they were at. They actually used the Greek translation of what we call the Old Testament, which, which is known as the Septuagint. They, they were, by, by Hebrew-speaking Jews, by Aramaic-speaking Jews, by what are labeled Hebrews here, in the rabbinical writings, sometimes they're written of as if they are second-class citizens. Let me give you an example. So they're together in one place, right? These, these Hellenists have now relocated because of what happened at Pentecost. They are relocated to Jerusalem to live and to worship the Lord and to be part of this community and all of that. And the Hebrews are over in the corner complaining because when they call customer service, they have to press one for Hebrew and press two for Greek. They're seen as second-class citizens because of these distinctions. 
even as believers in Jesus, there's apparently from this, there's still some kind of suspicion, some kind of division among them. And the Hellenists, as you heard, are concerned about the treatment of their widows. Now, in that day, widows wouldn't have financial stability. Inheritance would go to children who, yes, are supposed to take care of family. However, there's no inheritance for a widow. There's no life insurance, if you will. There's not a chance at a second chance. Go back to school, get your education, and start your career now. This is why Timothy is told by Paul how to care for widows, that some should remarry if they're younger, that some need to be taken care of by their family if they have it, and others, who he says are truly widows, need to be taken care of by the church because nobody else will take care of them. Now, widows not receiving enough food is a problem. Some widows receiving the inequity in the distribution of the food, that's a problem that needs to be addressed. But before we go on to see how they addressed it, I want you to notice one other thing. Notice how the Hellenists come. They do not come to appeal to the apostles' sensibilities. They complain. Now some will say, well, when you get this many people together, and by this time in Jerusalem there were something like four or 5,000 men plus other people believing and so this is a huge crowd we're dealing with. Once you get this many people together, I mean, you're just bound to have complaints. You ever heard something like that? Did you know that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are never, no, never, no, never bound to complain? Oh, we complain. But we are not bound to do so. The reason why we know this is actually Paul commands us not to in Philippians 2. He says, do all things without grumbling. Grumbling being the same word as complaint there in Acts chapter 6. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, dear church family, there are any number of issues that we may deal with together, problems that will arise, but we really should be clear on this, that complaining, not raising an appeal, not asking questions, that's not what we're talking about, we're talking about complaining, which is an, is a, is an indictment of what's happening. This kind of complaining, whether it's in public, whether it's in your growth group, whether it's in a one-to-one -one conversation, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's in an anonymous email that you send, you create a special email address just to send that one email and then you shut down that email, whatever it is, it's unfit for the believer to do so. It diminishes the brightness with which we shine as the light of the world. So that rather than shining as stars in a dark generation, our light is eclipsed by our complaints, by our grumblings, by our infighting. That's why Paul speaks against it. So there's a problem here in Acts 6. But, it's, but just so we can set this in its proper context, this is not merely a natural problem. 
if believers are not bound to do this, this is not merely a natural problem. This is a supernatural problem. The enemy of their souls, the enemy of the church, the enemy of God and his purposes is behind this. Satan would gladly see this church splintered. You could almost picture it, couldn't you? He sneaks up behind one of the leading Hellenists and he said, you know, they got more over there. What are you going to do about it? You really think this is fair? You really think this is how things ought to be in the church? And the thoughts come like that and the Hellenists say, you know what? I'm not sure this is fair. Have you seen how much that we're getting versus what they're getting? And then it stirs. You see, the enemy of our souls would love to kill the joy that they have in Christ. He would love to steal the unity that they have. He would love to destroy this church. And that's why this problem and all problems must be addressed. It removes something about which they can complain. If you, this, is like, this is like radical repentance almost. You, take, you just flee the place of temptation in one way by fixing it to where we're not... The apostles aren't just looking at them saying, hey, you guys need to be more spiritual than this. If you get less, you just need to be content. All right? You be, are you not content? Are you not content? Do we need to have a service right now? Do I need to have an altar call? Do you need to come down and repent of your discontentedness? That's not what happens. They care very much that these widows are cared for. And so that, though it didn't come to them in the form it ought to have come to them, it came to them. And so they're going to deal with it. And the plan is the second thing to notice. So we've seen the problem. Secondly, we see the plan. How are they going to respond to the problem? Well, skip to verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So we'll just spend a brief amount of time here. The apostles are calling for men to be appointed to run the widow ministry. They must be godly men, devoted to honoring God, devoting to serving the congregation. And as these men do so, they will guard the unity of the church. They will remove obstacles to ministry. Isn't it compelling that the apostles didn't call for men who are experts who have experience in food distribution services. He doesn't call for chefs or waiters. He calls for men who are experienced with the Lord. Men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Would you have the would you rather have uh, someone who is of good repute and full of the spirit and full of wisdom, but maybe lacking in all the financial sense, you know, signing those checks? Or would you rather have a smooth and knowledgeable and expert banker who's, well, I can't put my finger on it, but something's just not right. I will tell you, I'll take the first guy every day and twice on Sunday. And so would the apostles. They're not looking for expertise, they're looking for maturity. That's who the church needed to do this. Men of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And we're not going to look at these men in particular in detail, but needless to say, they, 
this becomes the prototype of what we know as the deacon ministry of the church. Men who care for the physical needs of the congregation to guard the unity of the church and to remove obstacles to continued gospel ministry. It's not natural skill nor work experience that qualifies any person for the office of deacon. It is God's supernatural work and the, the spiritual life of that one. That is the qualifier. In fact, if you were to look closely in 1 Timothy 3, you'd see a whole lot of similarity between the character qualifications before the elders and the character qualification for the deacons. Gray Road, we should truly be thankful for, the, for those who serve us as deacons. If, if you're currently serving as a deacon, will you just stand up for just a second? Because not everybody, you just came on board. So if you're, some of you did. You know how to stand. Ron, stand up. <laughs> and so we thank God for these men, and some of them are in other places. Go ahead and sit down. Now see, you know how to do that. But it took you a long time to figure out how to stand, I tell you what. And these men work in basically four different areas. We have men who focus in benevolence, who oversee the funds that come in on that first Sunday of the month as we leave and we give that benevolence offering. They oversee it and they make sure it's distributed with care and compassion and courage sometimes with those who are struggling financially. We have men who particularly help in the finances, who, who helped write the budget that we are going to be looking at tonight. I didn't write this budget. The elders didn't write the budget. These men who who have come together and put the right numbers in the right boxes under the leadership of the elders to, to do this. They oversee like the weekly distribution of money for ministry support and bills and financial reports and they keep their eyes on things to make sure we maintain a fidelity in our finances. We have men who oversee things regarding what happens in this room, what we call our deacons of worship. They prepare the Lord's Supper when we take it. They prepare and oversee the logistics for baptism when it happens. They should be making sure that there are Bibles in all of these pews so that when someone says, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew in front of you, you shouldn't come up empty. And we have deacons who oversee the facilities, our buildings and grounds. Just yesterday I was here and I found Doug Waltz up on scaffolding in the, in the foyer changing light bulbs and taking care and doing other work with the other men who are on the building and grounds, uh, the new building and grounds guys. The work of deacons is incredibly important. It's not middle management. It's not like we, you know, maybe you can make it to there, but we're not sure if you can make it any higher. These men are incredibly, incredibly important in the life of our church. And we thank God for them. They guard us from division. They guard us from what might distract us by serving faithfully and often without anybody seeing what happens. So deacons are the plan. There's the problem, there's the plan. Now we get to the priority. You may have wondered where prayer had gone in all this. Well, here it comes. It's in the priorities. But the question remains, if this is what the problem is, why is it that the apostles are going to pass off 
this work, which is important work, which guards the unity of the body, why are they going to pass it off to this group of separate men? Why don't they do it themselves? Is it because they just got back from a leadership conference that emphasized delegation? Is it because they just don't care to do it themselves? Is it because it's beneath them? The answer to all these things is no. It's not beneath them. Trust me, as an elder, I can tell you nothing is beneath me. Nothing. There's no work that I look at and say, oh, I'm not going to do that. Don't you know I'm an elder? None of our elders are like that. And I thank God for that. So why pass it on? If it's not beneath you and if you can do it, then why not just do it? Why not, why not just give equally to all these different kinds of things? Well, their reasoning lies in their priority, doesn't it? It's stated negatively in verse 2 and it's stated positively in verse 4. So first stated negatively in verse 2, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. To use the language, it is not right, is to use really strong language. Because right here, the word right, is the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 8 when he talks about that he always does what pleases the Father. It means it's pleasing. In that sense, it's right. The apostles don't believe that it would be pleasing to God for them to give up preaching for the sake of waiting tables. And to give up means to leave, to leave it behind. To even depart at all from it. It's a word used of Levi in, in uh, Luke chapter 4 when he left everything to follow Jesus. The mission of preaching the word, of getting the good news of the gospel to the world was the priority that Jesus himself had given them. Before he said, look, what the world needs most is not a church that is committed to distributing physical provision as much as we are committed to helping those who cannot help themselves and helping the poor. That is not the primary mission of the church. It is actually just a subcategory, kind of a playing out of the gospel that we already believe in our own lives. What the world needs most is not physical provision. What the world needs most is the church's commitment to distribute spiritual provision. Because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What the world needs is the message of Jesus Christ. Who was the word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Jesus is who the world needs. The Jesus through whom nothing was made that has been made, who has existed eternally, who in verse 14 of John chapter 1 says, He came and dwelt among us. He was not made into a God. He was not just some great chosen teacher. He is God come in the flesh. And he lived in perfect righteousness because he is the righteous God in the flesh. 
And he died a death that he never deserved. He satisfied God's wrath against our sin. God himself, God the Father, punishes God the Son in our place. So that all who come to him by faith are forgiven of their sin, are made right with God, and are granted eternal life. This is the only way the Bible prescribes salvation. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus, our God and our Savior. If you have not come to Jesus Christ by faith, I would plead with you not to consider what kind of life you want to live, but to consider the fact that we will all stand before a holy God and consider the truth that there is no merit in yourself to gain entrance into His heaven. The only merit by which anyone enters heaven is the merit of Jesus Christ credited to us through faith. So that I'm not right, I, it's not that I'm righteous and so I'll make it to heaven, it's that Jesus Christ is righteous and he has counted me as righteous though I deserve nothing but wrath. He has counted me righteous. And it's only in that righteousness that I stand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This is the message that the apostles are entrusted with to take to the world. Can't you see why they can't leave it even for a moment? They can't turn their backs on this. They can't push pause on the mission of Jesus. They have to keep going. Not even to do important work that will protect the unity of the church. They can't stop. But they must make sure it's done so we will get the right men and we will put them in place and they will take care of it and we will preach. And we will go on. So stated negatively, it's not right to give it up. And then stated positively in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now don't you find that curious? Don't you find it the least bit curious that in verse 2, they just said it'd be wrong to give up the preaching of the word? But in verse 4, they say prayer and the word. You ever thought about why they might have said that? Why is it that they didn't feel they'd have to give up prayer in order to serve tables? It's a good question, isn't it? I actually believe it's because they couldn't give up prayer if they were going to properly serve the tables. If they were going to please God, they couldn't do it apart from prayer. You men who just stood a moment ago, your work as a deacon is not prayerless work. 
It's not something you just do. And you hope God blesses it in the end. If these men are to be men who are full, if they are men who are full of the Spirit and they are full of wisdom, it's because they are men of prayer. And that actually extends to every single one of us, doesn't it? Whatever ministry you are involved with, you can't do it rightly apart from prayer. You don't have the strength within yourself. Deacon or not, no matter how simple it is or how complex it is, no matter how just natural it seems or unspiritual it may seem, the, the, the Christian life is a spiritual life. It is spiritual and it is all of life, which means all of life is spiritual so that as I do whatever it is I do, as you have so graciously and kindly buried us in trays of food over the last six weeks, as Susan has healed. I trust it's not been done without prayer. That as you, as you who hold doors open and greet people, do you, do you pray that you might encourage and bless those who walk through the door that you opened? For you who stand at the information booth, do you pray that you will be a helpful guide and an encouragement to guests who are not part of our church family and are coming to visit? Those who sing and those who play, do you, do you pray? Do you, if you run the soundboard, do you pray? If you run the projection, do you pray? If you stream it live, do you pray? If you go to the Good News Mission, do you pray? If you're going to make a, help make a meal and serve a meal at Wheeler, do you pray? Prayerless service is arrogant service. It is to say that we don't need God to help us. This is simple enough. I got this. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apostles will devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let me give you four reasons why this is so important. The first is that prayer is necessary for the ministry of the word. I say this as one who is actively involved in it. Without the plea for help, the one who ministers the word does so in his own strength. With his own intellect and his own cleverness. And you know what all those are? Finite and fallen. If you sit down with a friend at lunch who said they need to tell you about a problem they're having, you better be praying that God will help you in that conversation. It is the epitome of pride, dear friends, to serve in that manner. It has been well said that, that those who would speak to men on behalf of God should first speak to God on behalf of men and quite frankly beginning with themselves and not only is that prideful but the results will be limited God is not going to fully bless that which is not when which we don't intentionally ask him for his help he gets the glory he will not let he will not share it with you he will not share it with me. He will share it with no one. 
The apostles are devoted to prayer and to the word because they know that prayer is absolutely necessary for their ministry. They're going into a world who has never heard this message, but who desperately needs this message and against whom the world will come with guns ablazing. So they have to have God's help. Even the Apostle Paul, who had seen the risen Christ, who'd been discipled by Jesus himself, he says he was taught the truths of the gospel by Jesus in Galatians 1. He was brilliant. He had been taught by the best Jewish scholars. He was the man. And he says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He prays for the content of his words and he prays for the power of his words. He prays for courage to speak the words. I wonder if it's true that too many times we have all the words. I don't need any help with words. I got words. I got lots and lots of words. But we never stop to ask the Lord to help us to say the words. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And at the same time, the power of life and death resides in the tongue. Don't you think we need God's help so that we will give life instead of kill? We do. And that's not just for preachers. That's not just for counselors. That's for, and when I say counselors, I mean people who've already recognized that everybody's a counselor. I just mean it's for anybody who's saying anything on behalf of God to anybody else. We need the content and the courage from the Lord in order to do it. Second reason is that Jesus Christ was devoted to prayer and the word. I mean, here is God the Son communing with God the Father, and he knows his need for that communion because he has put on the flesh. He sympathizes with us. He knows what it is. The best example of this seems to be in Mark 1. There are crowds swarming because of Jesus' healing ministry in Capernaum. And after a long day and lots of people healed, um, you know, they hang a sign over the front and they say, we'll be back tomorrow. You know, the, the disciples put that there. And Jesus goes off to pray. And in the morning, Peter and the others come and find him and say, uh, Peter, you know where we hung that sign that said, we'll be back in the morning? Well, we told him you'd be back in the morning. And the queue is already really, really long. There are lots of blind people, lots of deaf people, lots of diseased people. There are all kinds of people who are waiting for you. And Jesus says um, this, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. It's not because Jesus is uncaring toward those people, you see. It's because the, he, the, the, the healing ministry of Jesus was meant to magnify and amplify the words of Jesus and the character of Jesus as God in the flesh, speaking the words of God. 
And so in saying I've preached there and I've done some healing there, Jesus is saying they have everything that they could possibly need. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine if you're in that line and one of the disciples squeamishly comes over and takes the we'll be back tomorrow sign off the rope and says, uh, folks, we're going to a different town now. But Jesus wants you to know you have everything you need because you've heard him teach. You've heard the word. Can you imagine the guy going home with crutches and only one leg? What does he mean I have everything I need? Because as we read in the, the Gospels, Jesus did not come during his earthly ministry to heal everything that he encountered. He came to be God coming to rescue his people through his life, death, and resurrection. And he preached about it the whole time. Well, that's good, isn't it? Isn't it good to know you have everything that you need? Isn't that good? To know that you have everything that you need for life and godliness. The third reason, not only is prayer necessary, not only did their Lord Jesus prioritize prayer and the word, but the church must be marked by prayer and the word. Now the word is just rampant throughout, but there's a place in particular I want to point you where prayer is prioritized, and that is when Paul is writing to Timothy about how things ought to operate in the church. And he says to him in 1 Timothy 2, first of all then, before he gets to the qualifications of elders, before he gets to the qualifications for deacons, before he gets to how to take care of widows, he says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then a few verses later, he turns his Pauline eye on the men in the congregation and says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It almost sounds like that could have been written to the folks that the apostles are dealing with in Acts chapter 6, doesn't it? Stop all the quarreling. Pray. Apostles are not going to get caught up in the complaining and the quarreling and the grumbling. They're going to stay steady in the task that they've been given. That's why we seek to pray multiple times during our service. We pray at the beginning. We pray before we would dare to give God in worship what is rightly His. We pray for one another. We pray before the word is preached so that we are asking the Lord to help us and help whoever stands here to preach. And we pray at the end, asking God's blessing. If you notice, if you just follow the track all the way through, word and prayer mark out the, the footsteps through our corporate services. It is the beginning it is the middle, it is the end. This is what I'm supposed to be devoted to. This is what the elders are supposed to be devoted to. This is what apparently we need because the scripture teaches this. The church should be marked by it. And then fourthly, the reason why 
for the devotion is that elders who will be handed the, the same ministry, only localized and not with the same kinds of gifts that the apostles have, elders are to be examples to the church. So that later in that letter where Paul calls on the church to be marked by prayer, he tells Timothy in particular, let no one despise you because of your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And then Peter picks up his pen and talks to the elders of these dispersed peoples in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and says, shepherd the flock of God, and the last phrase is, being examples to the flock. One of the ways in which you shepherd the flock of God is to be an example to the flock. Not just, and when we say godly character, if, we can say, if we're going to somehow divide godly character from prayer, we are really mistaken. Well, I'm not really a man of prayer, but I'm a, I'm a godly guy. The, the Bible knows no godly man who is not a man of prayer. And so for all of these reasons, the priority of prayer and the word must be driven home time and time again. Can I tell you why? Because every problem that comes along has a satanic aroma to it that tries to draw us away into the problem rather than stay on course. Doesn't mean the problem doesn't need to be dealt with. It means, in the end, our ministry of prayer for you and with you, and our ministry of the word with you and in front of you and among you, and our oversight of this congregation are the criteria by which God will hold us accountable. You will not ask me how many committee meetings I went to unless I was sinfully selfish in denying it. You will ask, why didn't you speak the word there? Did you pursue them with all your might? The church must have leaders who prioritize prayer and God's word. So we can't underplay the role that leaders have. We can't underplay the examples that leaders set. But most of us in here are not elders. Never will be. Won't be deacons. Aren't deacons. So what are you to do with this? Well, first remember, if God speaks, he speaks with purpose. You ought to be convinced in your mind what it means for a man to be an elder. Because these are the men whose leadership you are to follow. You, you must. I, I was just talking with a friend in the, the church that they go to, which is the only, uh, well, let's just say the church that they go to, is crumbling from the inside because the men who are elders are making clear, ungodly decisions for the church and they are convincing the church that this is the way in which they must go. 
And I tremble for my friends, and I tremble for that church. Because it matters who is holding the shepherd's staffs, humanly speaking, in a church. So what are you to do? What can you do? Well, you can join me in what I said earlier, which is to be very, very thankful for the deacons who serve among us. You can be very thankful for them. And don't be shy about expressing it occasionally. It's a good thing to say thank you. You should pray for the elders in general. You should pray for the elder who fills the pulpit week by week specifically. You should pray for your response to the ministry of the word. You should pray in your Sunday. You can pray in your Sunday school classes for the preaching of the word. You can pray before your own personal Bible time recognizing that you will not comprehend the Bible as you ought without God's help. Just in general, brothers and sisters, we can encourage prayerfulness with one another. Just in, in so many ways. I'll give you one. The next time the words that want to come out of your mouth are, I'll pray for you. That's a great thing. It's wonderful. We've gotten cards in the mail talking about how many, so many of you are praying for Susan as she puts up with me in more, you know, stronger doses over these last six weeks. But rather than say that, when, you, when the words, I, I'll pray for you, want to come out, put your hand on your friend's shoulder and pray. Just ima imagine walking through the foyer next week. And there's someone who's expressed some, you don't even know what's going on. All you see is like two or three little pairs of people praying for one another. Imagine you're leaving the service. You just see people praying together. Speaking of the temple, Jesus said that his father's house would be a house of prayer. The Bible goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 to say that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are actually being built into a temple for God. We are a family. We are the house. And this household must be a household of prayer led by men who prioritize it. May God give us grace to be such a family. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you, recognizing our dependence on you, praising you because... You are a God who has spoken to us in your word. 
We thank you for this text. We thank you for the priorities of your apostles and how they speak to what our priorities ought to be as a church, especially among those who lead us, preach to us, lead us in making decisions. Father, we come also knowing our neediness We need your grace so that the truth of your word is seen as true in our lives. We pray you will guard us from complaining. We pray instead that we will deal with problems in ways that please you. We will honor you in difficult times and hard choices and all that lies before us. We thank you together for the men who serve us as deacons, not only those who are serving this year, but those who have served in years past, those who have rotated off to, to gain rest that they might be refreshed to, to serve you once again. Lord, we thank you for them. We pray you will sustain them. Use them as you please in our church. We pray for the elders that shepherd us. We lift up Kevin and John and Chad and Stephen. Kurt. And I pray for myself as well. Make us more and more men of prayer. Drive us all as a congregation to our knees. For when life shows us how weak we are, we trust and know that is where your power is perfected. So help us to come to you when life weakens us. Help us to come to you when we feel overly competent in ourselves. Turn our hearts from the pride of prayerlessness to the humility of intercession. Ask it all in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.